welcome to the buy round of Don the Stat. We've uh, made it all the way through to 12 weeks, Humi, and um, like the club at the moment, going through their uh, re-review of their review. We're going through a re-record of our review uh, podcast, mate, because COVID brain got the better of me last night and I forgot to hit the old record button. So uh, Zoom to the rescue. Thankfully, neither of us, well, I can't do anything on a Friday night this week and, and you've got a quiet one. So... Yeah, here we are, mate. How are you going? I'm I'm okay, doing better than better than you. I know you're going through your your ever your COVID hit, and you know everyone's going to have it. I'll probably have it, you know, eventually. But uh, look, hopefully you're getting through it okay. And giving you know giving an opportunity to re-record is is it gives you something else to do again. So yep. hopefully we do as yeah, good a job exactly. as hopefully we do as good a job as last night. I think last night was a good show. Um, apologies to Vince, uh, who was a, our first real participant in a while, um, asked a great question and unfortunately it's lost into the ether. So, uh, Vince, if you're listening, uh, apologies for that. Hopefully you do participate again soon, but, uh, yeah, a lot to get through tonight and we'll get stuck into it. So yeah, start with the port game, I guess. And, um, and yeah, give a quick review of that. What did you think? Well, I mean, it was, it, it was another, you know, it's, it's a loss, but it was another encouraging performance. Um, we, we talked about last week with the Richmond game, how, you know, we, we wanted them to be stronger at the contest and they were, they were then, and, and they followed through with that. Uh, they followed through with that this round. So, you know, we, we highlighted the fact that Porter a reasonable clearance side. Well, we dominated the center clearances 14, 14 to four. Uh, they sort of got us back a bit in the stoppage clearances, but you know, that again, that was an area of strength last year. And, and if we're getting back to that, that's going to give us more opportunities to score and to, and to get into games there. Yeah. I think you know it, mate. The set of clearances were really strong and um, we'll touch on it a little bit, but it was good to see uh, Archie Perkins get in there and, and, and enter the center clearance 16 times for a match high, which was great. Um, but yeah, we're still beating around the stoppages around the ground, weren't we? So we lost those 30 to 22 uh, and lost the contested ball 139 to 127. So it, it wasn't terrible, but I think early in the game, Port got probably more than their lion's share of contested ball, and that allowed them to get the ball on the outside and and get, you know, whilst we had shots and were missing, they were having probably better looks uh, and were able to kick some goals and get some scoreboard pressure on it. So, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't terrible, but um, I think probably the Port's cleanness out of the out of the stoppage was probably or out of the contest was probably the difference in the first half and, and ultimately the difference in the game. Absolutely. And I think if you if you go and look at those center clearances, a lot of them from Essendon's point of view were probably low, low percentage parish getting it on the backside of the of the clearance and, and kicking, you know, a 45 degree high ball to the to the point of the square sort of sort of clearance. It's not your running forward, kicking to a leading player sort of clearance. So a bit of work to do there, but the fact that they're winning them at the start is a good point. We also talked about uh, having fast exits and taking territory. So I obviously planned for the wet and, and they played a lot better in the wet than they did in the dry. Uh, but, you know, there, there was difficulties in that first half moving the ball forward, but there was the pleasing aspect that they were able to control the territory in, the, in that second half, particularly in that third quarter. A lot of repeat entries into into the forward line, holding holding the ball in there. Perhaps the wet helped with that, but also I think something that we've talked about in the past that that defensive structure and, and pushing up seemed to have seemed to click in that third quarter and being able to hold it in there. And it's just one of those things that they have to make a four quarter aspect of their performance. 
Yeah, we were a bit worried, weren't we, without Redmond, whether we were going to be able to to still get some carry from behind and and break lines because he'd been doing that really well over the last month. But I thought Hind had another positive game, you know, certainly better than the form he'd shown earlier in the year. And he really did try and carry the ball. And then McGrath uh, at times did it really well as well and, and kicked that goal early in the game, didn't he? So I think, you know, it was a big tick there. And and I think one of the things that we mentioned when we were reviewing that defensive press was the that the margin for error uh, in that is really, really small. It only takes one guy to um, to sort of not get in the right position and, and all of a sudden the ball's down the other end. And I think maybe that just reduced or reduced that margin of error for us in the wet because the ball was a little bit slippery and, and Port, Port couldn't be as clean maybe as they otherwise would have. But what it did really display was how that that forward or high press really works really well and can create, um, you know, repeat inside 50s. I think we had the first 12 of the third quarter. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to kick enough goals. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think we did a pretty good job. We, you know, we got some carry from behind with the guys that we did have and we did a really good job, particularly in the second half of taking territory and just getting the ball forward. So, yeah, I think that was the most pleasing part of the game for me. And the one player that we we highlighted was Dan Houston. You know, he's not he's not the typical player you think of in terms of stopping stopping Port, stopping Houston, you stop Port. But he's he's someone who's been quite dangerous in terms of that intercepting defender and one of those players that really propels the ball forward for them. And he basically went his season average, except in in one area, which you you pointed out uh, to me. Yeah, I, I think instinctively people think of a Lear Lear when when you think of intercepting marking and, and the defender that does damage for Port Adelaide and, and he does. I mean he he stands out because of his his size and his athletic attributes and obviously he's really good in the air. But Dan Houston's a player that is, you know, whilst he's not as big, he's he's equally as good in the air. Uh, as we mentioned last week, he's um third at port for disposals and second for intercepts. But um, but he's such a good ball user. He can run and he can carry and he's a really, really good long kick of the ball. So I think the the bit where we did get a bit of a win was um, in, in regards to inside 50. So he only had the two for the game, which was a bit below what he normally does. One of those did end up being a goal, um, you know, which just shows the class of the guy and how good a user he is. But I think, yeah, I think that was a bit of a win. And, a little bit like the the job that Francis did on Sicily um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it didn't. We didn't necessarily stop Sicily, or in this case, Houston getting a heap of the footy. He still did, but he wasn't able to get it in the dangerous areas that he typically does, and wasn't able to 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 get the ball in the sort of the middle third of the ground. So, um, so yeah, I thought it was a, a reasonable job to to limit his influence. Absolutely, and so over, overall, you know, from where where Essendon's performed. Uh, this year so far, it's probably in the top half of performances for them, which, you know, isn't saying much, but it's, it's on the improve and hopefully coming out of the buy, they can, they can continue to improve along those lines. Yeah. And, you know, we had 11, ga- 11 players, sorry, who'd played fewer than 50 games to that side. So again, we were an, une- an inexperienced side up against a pretty experienced opposition. Uh, Port Adelaide had just the four. So another honorable loss, which isn't something that I particularly enjoy, but, I think the realism in me says that, you know, we saw some young players play really well. Durham had a great game. Martin was really good again. You know, Wanganeen showed a little bit. 
Um, I feel like I'm forgetting someone there, but um, but uh, oh, Perkins as well. Yeah, we, we sort of touched on him, didn't we? So I think our young players showed a bit and we played well in the wet weather, which we haven't really done in, well, for as long as I can remember, to be honest. So, yeah, I think I think if you look under the hood of it a little bit more, there's some some definite positives out of the game. Absolutely. So moving on, we'll, we'll talk about what's been in the news this week. And the first thing that, that comes to mind is the uh, reintroduction of the internal review. The, the review they said they weren't going to have a couple of weeks ago is now back on. And it, it does seem to be more of a, you know, checking, checking that everything's working the way it's intended. It's not, doesn't seem to be anyone's job on the line at this stage. Although, you know, sometimes when they say that eventually there's, there's a bit of a clear out, but what do you, what are your thoughts? I mean, we only had a review a couple of years ago that, you know, changed a few, changed a few things. And, you know, is it, is it too soon to, to know whether the path they're on is, is the correct one? You already pointed out just that the lack of uh, experience in the playing list has a, has a big impact on, on results. Are they, are they being impatient? Are they being too reactive to what's being said in the media or what's being said by fans? Or do you think there's a legitimate need to review right now instead of potentially at the end of the year? I think the, the difficult thing when there's an internal review is there's no one to review the reviewers. And, and if we do have problems in there at, at the club and, you know, clearly we, things aren't going to plan right at the moment. Uh, that's not to say the plan's terrible or, or anything like that. But I think the benefit of bringing in external help to, to do that is it keeps your, your reviewers um, accountable as well. So, you know, that, that's an interesting one to me. But I think the, the two things for me really are, one, the lack of comms and transparency. I think if they had have come out and they being – you know, Brasher and Campbell as the two key decision makers at the club had to come out, you know, six weeks ago when we didn't get to the, have the start of the season, we would have liked to just said, look, you know, we're, we're not playing the way we want to, but we've got a plan. We're backing up our, our people and, and we'll get through this. I think it would have been a little bit more palatable. The cloaks and dagger stuff, I think is just really disappointing. And um, I think takes the fans and the, the members for, for granted a little bit. So yeah, I, I think they could have done that a lot better. Um, and then I think it's really important on how they communicate and handle this internally because, you know, footy clubs can be dark places when you're losing uh, anyway, let alone when you think that your job or, or your your contract might be um, under scrutiny. And, and it it's, you know, it's not necessarily an environment that gets the best out of people. So we've had a pretty tough first half of the year. It could make the second half a lot worse if, um, if it's not handled in the right way. So, um, so yeah, look, it's just, it just feels like they've probably buckled a little bit to external pressure here. Doesn't it? I think you sort of share that view as well, that this is a little bit of a vanity thing and, um, or an optics thing, which um, the club seems to be making a lot of decisions based on at the moment is, is more how it looks rather than what it actually is. There does seem to be a sense that they're trying to head off some sort of challenge or, you know, potential board spill motion, you know, sort of what was happening at Collingwood uh, last year or, you know, what was happening at the Tigers before uh, before they started to get good, actually. Uh, so, you know, you hope they're doing it for the right reasons, as he said. The things that that are probably in the more positive column, we had two selections at the mid-season draft. We've picked up Massimo D'Ambrosio, uh, a halfback, small Small but really good user of the ball and and seemingly quite a tough 
a hard player. And Jai Menzies, a skillful small forward, uh, finds the goals and creates forward pressure. So they're both both areas of list need. Uh, they're both quite young. They're picked with the future in mind that these aren't, you know, mature age players that are going to be plug and play and, you know, drive us to the finals. These are these are players they've clearly earmarked as potential, you know, five, 10-year players for the club. And so there was a bit of uh, consternation that we didn't go for the big-bodied midfielder. Uh, there was the uh, South Australian Carmichael uh, on the board that, that we skipped. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you think they've made the right call here? Oh, look, hindsight answers that really, doesn't it? Drafting's, um, drafting's tough. But I think a lot of work goes into this. Um, you know, you're, you're tracking and watching guys basically from the age of 14 or 15. Um, so these aren't decisions that are made lightly. And I think, yeah, you're right. There was a lot of noise over the need to get a big body mid. And I'd imagine if Jay Cully had a slip through to us, we probably would have drafted him. Um, he, he seems to be clearly the best um, player in the draft. And that's why he went number one. Kangaroos went probably with need at, at number two. And then we drafted who by all reports and, and not just, um, out of Essendon, but was probably the most skillful uh, and and probably has the highest ceiling out of any player in the draft with our first pick. So yeah, we we definitely need skill in in outside skill and outside run on our list. So um, I think he's a smart pick and and Jai Menzi, um, you know, definitely ticks a lot of boxes. He's He's a hard worker. Uh, he tackles, he pressures, he's, he's strong at the contest. He's happy to put his head over it. So he's probably got some of the attributes that we know and love about Matt Guelphie. But the thing that he, he seemingly does have is an ability to to get creative around goals and hit the scoreboard, which um, which we desperately need. So, yeah, I think I think they both sound like they're going to be really good players for us. I, I really enjoyed seeing the the footage of the Ambrosio family uh, all together and um, and celebrating that. I think that's one of the really great stories about draft time is seeing these young guys get on lists and and share that with family and friends. And his manager too, I, I read, is um, was born in China and um, has been managing some AFLW players. And this is his first AFL men's listed player. So. Yeah, really great stories. And one of the really great things about our game is that it brings, you know, different cultures and, and people of different backgrounds together. But that aside, mate, I think the, you know, I don't buy into the big body or tall mid. I think somewhere along the line, being a tall midfielder has become more important than being a good midfielder. So I'm not sure where that comes from. Um, I guess, yeah, we look at teams like the Bulldogs and look at McRae and Bont and think that we need to have guys that big as well. But I think what's been lost a little bit in the hoo-ha of, of our list needs is that we've got, we've got Parrish, who's one of the best contested ball winners in the comp of the last two seasons. And that's, that's undisputed. He, he keeps racking them up and you only need to look at Brisbane and what they're doing with a relatively, you know, short midfield for lack of a better term. And, and Lockie Neal, one of Brownlow is, you know, um, one of the smaller midfielders running around off the back of being able to win a lot of contested ball. We've then got Stringer and Lankford who are tall mids um, who obviously play forward as well. But, you know, we've got two guys there that have got some real size about him, about them, but unfortunately haven't been able to get on the park. Uh, we added Martin just in the last um, draft period, obviously, um, or supplementary pick uh, post the draft period who's, I think, 191 or 192 centimetres, and then Perkins in the previous draft, 
who's 188. So we have addressed it through our drafting um, and and trade strategy. And then uh, Caldwell and Hobbs, who aren't tall, but they're, you know, they're sort of six footers, uh, but both genuine contested ball winners. So in the last two draft periods, we've added Martin Perkins, Caldwell and Hobbs, four guys who have got some size and can win contested ball to add to Stringer, Langford Parish, And we've got a, 200 centimetre winger running around who's, you know, probably the tallest midfielder in the AFL um, who just signed for two years, which is good news. So, um, yeah, I, I think we just need to get some of these guys um, back into the team and, and uh, that problem goes away a little bit. I think what we need is outside class to get the ball to and Ambrosio is, is very much that. And I think if you look at the age profile of our halfbackers, um, Redmond's playing good footy. Lord, we haven't seen yet. McDonough, we haven't seen yet. Um, and then we've got Hind, who I think will be 28 starting next season, and Heppel, who will be 31 uh, next year. So I, I think we we definitely needed to add to that. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think we should have every reason to be excited by these two young guys we've added to the list. Absolutely. And we've, we're two for two for quality mid-season draft picks so far with Snelling and Durham. So hopefully we continue that, that strike rate. But moving on, let's let's start talking just generally about how Essendon's gone. We actually spent the last two weeks going through the game plan and, and the defensive and the offensive game plan. So if you haven't listened to those, that's a really good opportunity to go back and get a get a bit of a view on how the game plan's going and, and what we think is trying to be achieved and, and and what's actually holding it back at the moment. But I guess, you know, if, if you if you reflected from the start of the season, I don't think even the pessimists amongst the fan base thought that Essendon would be this low at this point of the season. I think a lot of people thought that the first three games were going to be quite difficult, uh, but then there'd be the opportunity to to bounce back from there. But it hasn't worked out that way. And I think what that what that's done is that tough early draw with a new game game plan and game style that the players are trying to learn means that they the players have lost confidence. You need you know, sometimes you just need some early kills to really, you know, give the players some belief that they are, that the plan that they're working towards is going to be successful. And, you know, they obviously, they either over, over prepared for that Geelong game and were just gassed at the start, or they, they weren't prepared for how hard Geelong were going to come. I think the Brisbane and Melbourne results showed a bit of promise, you know, even though they were losses that we were competitive in those. And it's probably the free, things like the Fremantle and the Sydney game that really, you know, whether the game plan's completely fallen down, whether that's for, you know, five minutes in the third quarter against Freo or the, you know, basically the entirety of the Sydney game. But then also you have the, the injuries that were suffered and we've particularly been hit hard in that half forward line. And that half forward line is a really important aspect of, both moving the ball forward, you know, so having those connections up the wing and moving into the forward line and then also providing that pressure, you know, at, at the exit of the 50, which is an area where if you're going to play a high defense, then you, you really can't have any gaps because once it gets through that, it becomes more difficult for the rest of the players to stop. And so you take those those sort of players, the Langfords, the Snellings, uh, Stringer, Jones, Tipper's retirement out of it. And then you add the fact that we've been the least experienced side in every game this year. Uh, you know, you you want you don't want to say that this is this is an expected result, but you know that there's reasons behind it, and you don't necessarily want to give them excuses for it. But you also can see, you know, structural reasons why that you hope that they're able to address. 
Yeah, I think that's a good summary, mate. We, we have spoken a lot about the way we're trying to play over the last couple of weeks. So um, at, at risk of, of um, sort of doubling up too much, I think we'll sort of leave that as it is. But yeah, the, the I, I don't buy or agree with the theory that, you know, Ben Rutten's had three years or, or whatnot to build this game plan and teach it. I think there's been a massive change in the way that we're defending uh, and the structure that we're implementing. And the reason that we're doing that is because we need to. To be able to compete and play um, play and win finals, we, we need to be able to defend higher up the ground. And last year, for whatever reason, we were defending from the back half of the ground. And and that may just have been a, a teaching and development mechanism to to, to uh, with a new back line, keeping in mind that we had, um, you know, Stewart playing back for the first time. I think he played a couple of games late 2020 back there and Laverde playing in defense for the first time. So I think, um, yeah, new back line, um, you know, Hind came into the club, Heppel moved back after being a midfielder for, you know, a number of years. So, uh, yeah, it sort of made sense. But we're now got this high press um, defense going and that's going to take some time. Um and then, yeah, you, you kind of got to wonder what the season might have looked like if we had have drawn West Coast or North Melbourne in the first couple of weeks because Geelong was was terrible. We were pretty good against Melbourne and um, and Brisbane early in the season. Um, but, you know, obviously they're very good teams who are, are going to be, you know, playing off for top fours and flags. Uh, uh, you know, they're in a different part of their cycle to us. So, um, so yeah, and then I think the two teams that, that everyone likes to compare us to um, it, Carlton and Hawthorne in terms of their rebuilds for lack of a better term. You know, Carlton have had injuries of recent time, but you know, where we lost the likes of Hooker and, and Zarakis and um, you know, Bell Chambers the year before and um, Tipper hasn't played this year. Hurley hasn't played for two years. Um, so we've had a lot of experience walk out the door. They've been able to get some experience back. So, you know, Doherty obviously has come back from from his challenges um, and playing really good footy. Charlie Kerno's come back into the side after being injured. And then they've added um, a couple of guys through through free agency and drafting in um, uh, Hewitt from the Swans and Chera from Frio. So, you know, they've added experience and and we've lost it. And they also started the year with a pretty healthy list. Um, and what that has meant is when they've got injuries over the last month or so, they they already had confidence in their group. So they've got young guys coming into the side, coming into a team that's playing on confidence, whereas we've got young guys coming into a side surrounded by a bunch of other young guys who don't have confidence. So, uh, very different situation. And then I think the Hawthorne example, you know, when when we beat them, everyone was writing them off, saying that there were problems. Then they come out and get a scalp the following week and everyone's talking them up as a finals chance. And then they lose the following week. And that's just the cycle of young teams, isn't it? That consistency becomes really hard to find. So, um, yeah, two and nine's not great. It's Well, it's not it's not good at all. It's terrible. Um, and it's not where we would have liked to have been or, or I thought we would have been. But... Um, I think the realist in me thought that we might have been, you know, might have had four or five wins maybe by this time of the season. Um, well, probably four, I think, um, would have probably been a a really decent start to the year given the the development that our list still has to do. Yeah. So, look, 
hopefully the second half of the season, there's there's an uptick and it'll relate to our, our final thoughts question uh, coming up. But, you know, a lot of, lot of realistic a lot of lot of things, lot of things to think about and 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 build from though. So you're, you're building from you're building from the bottom. So you know, there's probably only you know, probably only a way is up from here. But also talking about um, going up and going down, we thought we'd look at players whose stock has gone up. So players who have increased their their reputation and players who stock has gone down. So these aren't these aren't players who you know have only been in the system for a, a year or so. So when, this isn't about you know Cox or Reed. You know he played one game last year, not talking about his stock rising he's just introducing himself the players that really stood out to me particularly was uh matt guelphy uh one of the things i've really been impressed by is that he's had to fill he's basically had to fill two roles he's had to fill langford's role as that high half forward and he's had to fill the snelling roles that as that pressure forward i think he's done particularly well at both of those to the extent of his his particular limitations he's not the most skillful footballer he's not the most athletic footballer but he does you know, try, try his hardest. He's done, I've noticed a fair bit that he's been one of the players that's been really good at holding his width and providing that outlet kick, uh, leaving the defensive 50. And, you know, that's, that's something we've lacked with, without Langford and, and Cox being down as well. So I think he's really lifted his, his stock. I don't know whether in a full, uh, with a full, a full healthy list, he's still best 22, but he's really cemented the fact that he's the sort of player, he's the sort of player a lot of premiership teams need, you know, the one that may not be best 22, but you know, when there's a, someone goes down, there's a, a quality player that can come in and plug a hole and, and you know, they're going to give hundred percent and they're going to fulfill their role in the game plan. So I think he's, I think he's really lifted his reputation so far this year. Yeah. Good assessment. I, I agree. I think my knock on him early in the year was that he was doing the pressure side of things, which we've always known about. Um, You know, he's a real honest, hard effort player and and you know you're going to get that from him. But I think, you know, if you're playing in the forward line, you still need to be able to get the ball and you still need to be able to kick goals. And he wasn't really doing that um, in the first month or so. But, you know, credit to him. I mean, that's part of learning a new role too, right? So credit to him. I think he's... He's found his position now. Um, he's been able to to find space, be a link up player at times, as you mentioned, and um, and more recently, he start to hit the scoreboard a bit as well. And he's a bit of a a barometer, isn't he, for us at the moment? You know, with the absence of obviously Waller um, not being there, we we don't have too many in the forward line that can really um, uh, not necessarily excite, but just generate enthusiasm and he's one that's been able to do that at times. So yeah, real credit to him. Absolutely. And the other one that the other one for me that that I that stood out to me was, was Peter Wright. I think there was a a fair bit of chat about Peter Wright uh after last year that you know he could he could be a supporting player in the forward line. He, he wasn't going to be the the man that could hold down a forward line, but I think particularly up until probably the last couple of weeks where teams have really tried hard to, to block his space and, and, you know, double and triple team him. He's really been a standout at the fact that he, he can be the man in the forward line. He can, he can dominate that. He can, he can dominate the forward line. He can, sorry, I'll start again. He can dominate the forward line. He can, uh, you know, be a, be a massive target for us and, you know, kick, kick large bags of goals. The, the game that really stands out to me is the Melbourne game. Like he gave Stephen May an absolute bath, you know, one of the best, best uh, defenders in the competition. 
and he he had no answer for him. So I think we've got to do a bit more in terms of giving him the space that he needs to to work in, given that teams are really pushing back and, and, and blocking that space. I think the return of Jones and then hopefully Stringer after the bye is going to give him a bit more freedom because there's going to be more players for the opposition to be worried about as opposed to just worrying about Peter Wright. But I think he, he's demonstrated that, you know, in, in, a, in a well-performing team, uh, you know, he's, he's doing it. He's d- done it in a team that's not performing very well. If we get a, a well-performing system, he's going to be absolutely the sort of person that can be the number one key forward. Yeah, when you consider we're one of the worst teams uh, in terms of number of inside 50s, the the number of goals that he's kicked has been a real shining light. So uh, I think you're right. He really has stood up and shown that he can can be the number one key forward in our forward line going forward. Um, I think we'll, we'll touch on a little bit later because we had an audience question in regards to the two rucks uh, or more in particular to Andrew Phillips. I don't think the two rucks has helped him because I think what is happening, it's, it's helped to keep him in the forward line. Um, but the the downside of that is when the second ruck is playing forward, they're typically playing deep and not really offering any movement. So he ends up, Draw it ends up making it easy for the second defender to get to to Peter Wright and and take his space. So I don't think that's helped him at all. Um, but yeah, I think Jones coming back will will definitely benefit him. And, and Stringer then takes that to another level as well. As you said, that gives three forwards um, down there who who are all capable of taking a mark and kicking a goal. So um, yeah, I, I, I'm really liking what I see there. And then the one that I Wanted to add to that, mate, was Mason Redman. I think especially over the last five or six weeks, he's um, he's played some really, really good footy. Um, it hasn't been easy in our back line at all, but um, we've seen that sort of competitiveness that we really love from him over the last few years come back into his game. He's showing some real leadership down there. We saw the situation with Dylan Shield in the Swans game where he spoke out about um, Shield, um, you know, chasing and, and getting back in the zone. Uh, which I think is a really good sign for a relatively young player. And we're starting to see that run and carry come back into his game. And I reckon what we'll see when Jones and Stringer come back into that forward line full time is we'll start to see him using his foot skills more because we'll have more outlet kicks for him and he becomes an even more dangerous player. So, um, so yeah, he was the the third one for me. And then, yeah, I think, you know, this, this show, um, you know, we, we made a bit of a pack not to really pot anyone and, and, you know, this isn't really what we're about, but I think the the probably the one guy whose stock is is a little bit down and and um, probably isn't playing with the confidence and uh, form that we're used to seeing is um, is obviously Jordan Ridley. I think he's um, yeah. I mean, he's he's a class act. He's he's already shown that he's capable of playing well beyond his experience. His first 30 or so games for the club was incredible. So I'm sure he'll bounce back and um, it's not something that we should be overly concerned about. I think it's hard to maintain that level of form in a young career, um, you know, the way that he has, but uh, he certainly isn't marking or spoiling with the confidence that we've been used to. So nor is he kicking with the confidence that we're used to either. So yeah, hopefully that form will grow as the team around him starts to grow. But yeah, he's he's the one I think that's probably down a bit on um, on what we're used to. Yeah, and I think the other one that that comes up a lot is is Heppel and uh, just just where he's at. He's, I think we've just got to be realistic that he's he's a lot closer to the end of his career than he is to the start of his career. Uh, you know, he's he's losing a little bit of the athleticism. He's losing a little bit of the of the pace. 
And, you know, he, he's probably making more mistakes than we would like. Uh, but the other thing to remember is, you know, he's, he's the captain. The players obviously love, love him and love playing with him. They keep voting him to be the captain. Uh, you know, we, we, we lack experience. Like we're not, you can't, if you take another 200 games out of the side, you know, think about where, where the experience of the side's at. Like you, you'd still need that, that calm head, that, that experienced head, particularly in the back line to really help provide that support. And, you know, his, his output may not be, you know, what it was, but I think he still has a lot of value in, in an experience sense uh, to provide the side. Yeah, I agree, mate. I, I think he's been really harshly spoken about. I, I, he's obviously been beaten this year. He's been asked to play on small forwards that I don't think he's capable of. of I don't think he was ever capable of playing on blokes like Ginevan, let alone now when he's um, when he's aging and his body's starting to let him down a bit. Um, so I think that's unfair to judge him on those performances. I think, you know, that that's probably to a byproduct of Kelly coming in and, and really creating an imbalance, I think. I think it's a product of Hind and and earlier in the season, Redmond not being in great form. So we couldn't send them to those guys. And then we haven't really yet been able to settle McGrath back there because we've had some injuries through the midfield and he's had to come in and do jobs. So, um, so yeah, I, I think he's being harshly criticised. I think where he can still play really good footy as it is as the the defender who's responsible for the opposition's um, high half forward, the guy that's running up to be the extra player at the contest because he's good at reading the play. He's really good at picking up bikes as they come back through transition and he's really good at intercepting marking. And, and I think that Hawthorne game is a great example where he did play that role and I think he had 12 or 13 intercept marks and was one of the best players on the ground. Yeah, he's still getting the ball 23, 24 times a game. So um, I know he's... His kicking hasn't been great, but again, we've spoken about the that being uh, at times is also a byproduct of what's happening up the field. So, um, yeah, I think I think he's still a, a very important player, and, and we need some experience out there to teach the young blokes the way. Absolutely. Now, during the week, we put out a call for some audience requests for questions uh, that they want answered. We got a really good response. Uh, from our listeners. And so we're going to go through some of those now. So the first one came from both Quick Sprint and Epic Dons and how we stop opposition transition goals. It's something that's really stood out this year as a big weakness. Uh, surprisingly so, given that uh, according to a Fox Sports article from a couple of weeks ago, uh, it's been a very difficult year for teams to move the ball from from one end to it to another and, and, and score. And so it's really stood out that, that Essendon's been quite week at that. And so I went and had a look at a couple of examples from the port game. Uh, there was one where uh, the ball moved slowly up the wing, Ridley missed a Ridley missed a punch and then they were out and, and got through to a goal. And then there was one later on where we allowed them to take the ball wide. We didn't roll over the the zone quick enough and, and they moved the ball forward uh, quite quickly into, uh, into Marshall's hands. And, you know, it, it's something that has happened quite a lot. And, you know, it, it's really important to, to sort of get an understanding of, of what's happening and what we can do to fix that. So you, I posted those on Twitter for those of, uh, who want to have a look at those pieces of vision. But what were your thoughts based on seeing those, those two examples, what potentially we're doing wrong? Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt throughout the course of the season there's been some examples of, of where we've given up, you know, end-to-end goals through 
you know, just poor effort or, um, yeah, lack of pressure and, and all of those kind of things. Um, and I think there's been even more examples of where it's been inexperienced guys not able to get themselves into the zone in time and then some little mistakes or lapses along the way that have kind of catastrophized to make things look worse than what it is. And then they all get bundled up together. So I think the two examples that you showed um, on Twitter were really good ones of that sort of more of that latter example where some things went awry along the way. Um, and at any point in time, getting any one of those right probably gets us a different outcome. So I'll, I'll concentrate on the first one because I think there were three things that, that in that one that happened that, that could have been stopped. So uh, one thing that was in common with both of them was that they were both kick-ins from general play. So we behinds that is from general play. So these weren't set shots where we had an opportunity to set up our zone whilst the set shot was being taken. Um, they, were, they were both from general play. So you've got less time. Um, but the first one was it looked to me from the the footage and, you know, granted we don't get the behind the goals and we don't have um, a great, you know, we were watching on telly because the game is over in Adelaide, but it looked to me that Draper was the one who was playing forward at the time who was slow to get into his position in the zone. And, you know, so, so Sammy Draper's a guy who's played all of what 30 odd games now, uh, but very few of them as a forward. So normally as a ruckman, your role in the zone is just to follow your opponent because you know that the opposition ruckman is normally the bailout kick if they don't have another option. So the ruckman is normally the exception to the rule where they don't zone, they just go and man up. Um, so he hasn't really been used to to, to playing in a zone, uh, but had to move really quickly. And I think if I remember correctly, that behind was the one, mate, I think where he... Uh, Draper was the one that sort of soccer kicked the ball forward out of midair and, and got it inside our forward line. So he was sort of involved in the play and then didn't zone up quickly enough. Um, and then what happened was Perkins was caught then between um, having to cover two spots in the zone and ended up getting stuck between Houston and Allaire, um, obviously uh, two you know, very dangerous players. So, um, and, you know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago when we talked about our defensive zone, about the need to make really quick decisions when you are caught out, you either need to commit to coming forward or commit to coming back really quickly. And and in the end, Perkins just got a little bit caught and didn't really do either. So the ball kind of went wide, got over the top, and then we were able to slow them down for a moment and they kicked long to a contest on the wing. And we then had a chance to kill it there and then. So Ridley uh, flew across the pack uh, so left his spot in the zone, flew flew across the pack as an extra man up, went to spoil, mistimed it, and um, I think it was Houston for uh, not Houston, sorry, uh, Marshall who took the mark. Um, but yeah, had had Ridley spoiled that, you know, put it should have put it in the second or third row um, of the grandstand. Then we don't talk about it, and um, and you know we get a throw in and we move on. But again, we miss that, and then from there we had both. Perkins and Martin trail Houston out of the forward 50. So he ran, uh, Houston effectively ran past both of them. Um, Perkins was the one in the end who sort of gave a chase on, but he was a long way behind. And as we spoke about pre-show um, and, and earlier in this show, that he's the one that you didn't really want to allow to get ball in hand in the middle of the ground. And he was able to kick pretty much from the center circle and hit Finlayson um, who had a mismatch on McGrath. Uh, one-on-one, a lot of space, and our backs were completely exposed. So I think, 
yeah, all, all along in that um, one bit of play, there was just two or three little things that that went wrong that then sort of snowballed to become big things. Um, and then the second example you showed, Ridley again um, was at the front of the pack at the end of that chain and decided to to try and mark instead of spoil. And again, had he spoiled, put the ball out of bounds or forced a, a throw in or ball up, we wouldn't be talking about it. So I don't think it's that we can't defend transition. I think that it's just that where we've got some inexperienced guys, Ridley's probably not quite in that inexperienced bracket anymore, but just some little mistakes along the way that are making this look a lot worse than it is. And and mistakes that are fixable. And I think with time and experience, you know, we'll see a much better performance in the way that we defend the ground. Absolutely. And I think it's it's key to remember we we sort of got the desired outcomes at the start of both of those, both of those exits. They had to go short and they had to go wide, you know, and it was just a failure of a couple of points of failure in the zone that meant they they could get out. And as you say, if you they fix those points of failure, then that suddenly becomes much more difficult for them to to move it out. We'll go on to the next question, and it's from Plugger. Uh, asked about Adrian Dodoro. Now, I said I would take this one given your past history with the club. And, you know, is it, it keeps coming up, and I, I, I blame trade. I blame trade radio um, as much as anything, the need for them to create a villain for, for content. Uh, you know, so he's obviously been around for a very long time. You know, he's part of the furniture. Uh, he's got a lot of really big fans within within some key key people in the club. So, you know, he gets a bit of leeway that way, but obviously you've got to judge the man on, on what he, what he produces. And, you know, I think if you, if he went, if he went through and there's, there's probably people have probably done this in the past on, on different websites, you know, go through and, and look at who he's picked and who he could have picked. There's, there's probably very few that you would say that, that he's whiffed. I think the one that really comes to mind is uh, Steinberg instead of Parker back in the early, I think it was 2010, uh, that's probably the big obvious one that w- that was a big miss. But, you know, you, you look at the individuals and go, okay, well, he, he's picked really good individuals in there. So the next next thing is, you know, he has he been able to build a list that could challenge? And I, I would say through no fault of his own, there's been a couple of circumstances where that's fallen down. So uh, you brought up last night, uh, 2002, and the salary cap issues that led to good good players having to leave. And then I, th- I, th- I personally think the 2013-2014 side uh, could easily have, at the very least, been a prelim side um, if, if the other things hadn't happened. So I think he, he has shown the ability to build what I consider to be a contending list. But also, you know, if you, you're there for that long, you know, some, sometimes, you know, regardless of whether if someone's performing well or not, you, you need, to, need to hear new voices and need to hear, need to have different people in those roles just because, you know, 20, 25 years and, and it hasn't worked, you know, it doesn't necessarily, not necessarily going to uh, turn on and work. So, I mean, is he, is he the symptom? Is he the disease? You know, I think there's arguments for both. Uh, it's uh, personally, like if he, if he got the, if this review gave him the sack, um, I don't think I'd be crying very hard, but also I'm not, you know, at the I'm on the I'm not at the door of the hangar um with a pitchfork and a and a torch, you know, wanting him to go either. I don't it doesn't really strike me as the biggest problem with the club at the moment. Yeah, I think it's a good summary, Matt. And I think there are elements where he's absolutely a product of the environment that that whole hard into 
uh, hard to deal with things. I think a, a product of a bygone era where where it was very much in being a product of the environment. The club had a real arrogance about the way that we we ran our affairs, and uh, in the early two thousands uh, or late nineties, early two thousands, you know, with reasonably good reason, we were a pretty damn good football club back then, and. Um, and, you know, we, we went into trade week with an approach that we were only going to do deals where we could win. Um, you know, there was no win-win situations when it came to dealing with us back then. Um, so, yeah, I think that was definitely a product of the environment. And then I think losing draft picks in um, in that 2016 sort of period or, or just before, sorry, was um, – yeah, that, that's obviously no fault of his own and, and he had – I think he did actually a pretty good job of finding some players given the challenges that we had. Um, you know, he got um, Zach Merritt, he got Fantasia with later picks when we lost our early picks in that draft. Uh, so I think he did, he did well there. I think he did a good job getting some value for the guys that wanted to leave through that period as well, Paddy Ryder, for example, um, and – and, you know, got those guys to the clubs that they wanted to go to, but also made sure that we got something back. And then I think he did a reasonable job, you know, which dispels the hard-to-deal-with myth uh, when Fantasia and Saad wanted to leave and, and got good deals for them. Um, and I think the other thing that's important to know is that we don't ever really know exactly who does make the final call at the draft table. So, you know, you... Um, one that he gets criticism over a lot is Myers instead of Cyril Rioli. I don't think a lot of people were going to take Cyril Rioli at, at pick six, but it's probably, and people can read between the lines if they want to, but um, but that was one where Matthew Knights was, it, it was effectively his first pick and he wanted to make a bit of a stamp on the club. So, you know, was that a list manager call or was that a, a senior coach coming in and, and wanting to have a bit of a say in how he rebuilt his side? Um, making that call. And then I think the the Steinberg-Parker one, um, you know, you you, you got to be careful when you look at those comparisons and go, well, just because Parker was taken after Steinberg, um, you know, does that mean that, that they made a decision between the two or because or, I think there was sort of six or seven picks between those two. Um, would any other club have taken him earlier? Um, but I do think that was one where it was a list manager call and, um, and went there. But, you don't have hindsight in recruiting, so um, it's not something that that uh, those guys get benefit of having. So yeah, I think yeah, I I think he's just a product of the environment, mate, rather than um, than than being a than being the disease, as you put it. Very well put. Now moving on, this is this is one that you've you've really thought about. Uh, this is from DeAnto. He asks if we're a better team with uh, Andrew Phillips in the side. So. You've got some pretty uh, detailed thoughts on this one. Yeah, I I think he's played really good footy, mate, when he's been in. Um, uh, you know, I, I think of the Ruckman that we've got on the list and and you, if you think of, of them at their best, then I think Draper's out. Uh, his best is, is the best of the three Rucks that we've got. Brian's obviously skinny and still learning. Phillips has been around the system for a long time. Um, so I think Draper's best is best. Um, that said, I don't think we've seen that a lot this year. And I think Phillips has probably at times outperformed him. What I do think though, is that they're both liabilities when they're playing forward. So um, I, I'd prefer that we just play three marking forwards rather than, than playing the two Ruckman. I think 
touched on it earlier. Uh, I think it creates problems for Peter Wright. It makes it easier for teams to to um, to drop off and um, and double team him and, and get someone cutting off his leading lanes. And and keep in mind, Peter Wright's not a a big contested mark pack mark. He's someone that needs to get on his bike and and have some space to lead into. So I think it I think it's detrimental in that regard. Um, and I think, um, but then I think, I wonder whether they're playing the two rucks because they're trying to protect Draper a bit. Um, he is inexperienced. It wasn't that long ago that he had his, his ACL injury and they probably don't want it to, to run him in the ground and break him down. Um, but I think if that is the case, I'd rather us just rest him altogether from time to time, you know, play him in five week, six week blocks and give him a week off and then play Phillips as a standalone ruck. Um, yeah, when when Draper's being rested, so uh, and then yeah, just second if we want to don't want to play right in the the ruck, want to keep him forward, just use you know Francis if he's playing or Baldwin or whoever it might be there as the as the second ruck as you know a lot of other teams do. I think Port used Finlayson last week, didn't they? So um, so yeah, I I think I think it's a liability when we have two ruckmen in the side. Fair, fair enough. And it sort of leads into, into the next question, which was from JR, which is about decision-making and, and heading into the forward line and, and sort of leads into that. And I think, you know, it, it seems to be, you know, you, there's a long bomb to it, to a pack or at all. That seems to be the, the uh, default option for a lot of the forward, forward entries. And, you know, the lack of crummers, you know, doesn't, doesn't help that. But I mean, I think, that's just a symptom of personnel. We, we talked before about, you know, the, basically the entirety of the half forward line being, being out of the side. And then, you know, the, no one really could have predicted Mosquito, you know, retiring when he, when he did, you couldn't predict Waller retiring when he did, uh, you know, they did, they did try and address the crummers issue. They, they inquired about roses from Gold Coast. Uh, the uh, Bobby Hill was a, was a close run thing from GWS. So they were aware of it and they've obviously selected Wanganine in the uh, supplementary pick and then Menzi in the, in the Menzi in the, in the mid season draft. So they're, they're aware of the issue that they're trying to, trying to fix. And I just, you know, it's just been a bit of bad luck that they haven't been able to, to fill that role this year. Yeah. And, and we've also had Caldwell, Hobbs, um, Perkins probably not so much, but certainly Caldwell and Hobbs playing half forward who were, you know, kids that are drafted as midfielders. They've not played in the forward line before. And I think that's really created a problem with getting, A, knowing how to, to function as a forward line and create space for your other forwards because they're, you know, they're ball get ball kind of players. And also you know, learning that forward craft of getting up the ground and and um, being outlet kicks. They're just not um, equipped to do that yet. So I think it's, as you said, it's just a symptom of of player availability, having a makeshift forward line, and then also a, a lack of confidence without that confidence to kind of take the ball on by foot. Uh, sorry, take the game on by foot and, and hit targets. Um, you end up just having slow and, and, yeah, as JR mentioned, predictable football and, and then long outlook out, um, outlet kicks to, you know, um, to tall. So I think it'll get better as we get personnel back. Um, Langford's great at playing, at creating space. Martin's already showing he can do it. Um, you know, string air adds another dynamic as well. We just need to get those guys back in the side. I'm sure it'll get better. 
Absolutely. So this is a one from a bit of a different different track. Mus Francis has asked you to provide what your best uh, team of Essendon rookie listed players is, and you, you've put together something that goes back to the start of the rookie list in 1996. Yeah, um, yeah. This was good fun doing this. So thanks, Mus, for the question. Um, Mus sent me through his team and cheated a little bit. He included guys from the preseason draft. Um, so I left them out and have just left it as the the rookie draft itself, which includes the the mid-season rookie draft. Um, and I guess that was the catalyst for, for the discussion, given that this was happening mid-season rookie draft week. So incidentally, our first two picks in the rookie draft were Mark Johnson and Gary Moorcroft. So two premiership players um, wasn't a bad way to start. Uh, would have been nice if, if they all ended up like that. But um, yeah, I'll start... The back line is a little bit undersized here, but I think the full back line is one that's got plenty of strength and toughness. And I think any one of these three or all three of them would slot pretty nicely into our side now. Um, so full back line, I went with Mark Johnson, Paddy Ambrose and Mark Bagley. Half back line, Connor McKenna um, on one half back flank, Sammy Durham on the other. And then this guy, He's way undersized to be a centre-half back, but he did actually play in the ruck in a final, so I'm going to back him in, and that's Nathan Lovett-Murray. Again, you know, another guy who had plenty of toughness about him, um, you know, and skill as well. Um, you know, he'd be great in our side at the moment. Uh, centre line, Andy Lovett, Ben Howlett, and Corey McGrath. And then the half-forward line, as we mentioned in the the lead-up to the Dreamtime game, I'm a... Um, unashamed Dean Rioli fanboy. So I've got him on the half forward flank and as my captain, Sean McKernan at centre half forward. And then Will Selling, who was our, obviously our first ever mid season draft or rookie draft pick uh, on the other half forward flank forward lines, pretty full forward lines, pretty creative, Moorcroft, Stuart Cramery and Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody. Then my rucks and rovers are Sammy Draper, Damien Peverell, who, uh, probably had the best first 10 or 11 games as a rookie um, of any rookie listed player that we've drafted um, and was probably really unlucky not to play in a grand final in that year in 2001. I think he came onto the list from memory for Joe Mercedi, didn't he? Who was out injured and then Joe came back from injury and, and meant Pev as the rules were back then had to go back onto the rookie list. Uh, so yeah, uh, Peverell and Heath Hocking, my other mids and then interchange, Corey Dialio, Courtney Johns, Ben Haynes, and then the last two didn't play games for Essendon but went on to have good careers. Uh, James Podziardly obviously won a flag at Geelong and David Johnson who, um, yeah, had a good solid career at Geelong as well. So, yeah, we've done pretty well out of the the rookie list there, mate. Got a few premiership players um, and and some guys who had really good careers. Absolutely. And we could do do with a few of those players now. I think, you know, it'd be quite handy to have a um, quite ha- ha- handy to have Connor McKenna back, for example, uh, coming off the halfback line. I think he's been a really uh, uh, underrated loss to the side uh, in particular, especially once we also lost Saad. Uh, moving on, uh, Zach L has asked us about the positives of getting our under 25 players valuable time at AFL levels opposed to coming through the twos. I think this one, this one here is an interesting one for me because I think it comes down a lot to the strength of the VFL program and what what we had a couple of years ago. So the couple of years before COVID, we had quite a strong VFL program. They were playing prelim finals. 
they, they had strong players in them. You had, you know, players like Aaron Heppel there, uh, players like Michael Hartley was, was playing a lot there, you know, experienced players that could, you know, protect the younger players. And I think in, in when you've got a side like that as, as your second side, you can have players go back, play play roles in, in the VFL in order to prepare them for the AFL. So, you know, if we had a side like that, you could send a Perkins back to the VFL for a couple of weeks to play as a centre square midfielder, knowing that he's going to get looked after, knowing that the team's not going to get smashed so that he could come back in and, and play that role at AFL, having had some experience there. But I think with the current VFL side, and they clearly dropped the ball uh, around the COVID years and, and let too many good players go, you know, I don't think you can have, I, th- I think what would happen is if you had those young players there too long, they would pick up, you know, bad habits or they would, they would pick up, you know, losing habits. You know, obviously we're not performing that well in the seniors right now, but they, they would pick up bad habits from playing in that environment. So I think if you, if you think about last year, Perkins and Cox probably played a lot more AFL games than they otherwise would have because the VFL side was, was quite, was quite poor. So I think at the moment, those sort of players should be getting like, like a Hobbs, for example, should be getting just as much AFL game time as we can get into them because as the VFL side is not, is not performing and is not really a good learning environment at the moment. I think the other thing to remember, the other thing to think about too, is that when a player does get sent back to the VFL side and they, they play well enough to, to get promoted again, often they don't come back in and play the role that they were performing really well in the VFL side. So I think one of the ones that stood out a few years ago was Langford. Langford would get dropped from the AFL side. He would go down, play in the center square, uh, dominate the VFL level in the center square. And then he would come back up to the AFL side and he wouldn't get a, he wouldn't get a crack in that midfield. And so he'd potter around, get 10 possessions across a couple of games, and then he would get dropped again. So he wasn't really building any, building on anything that he was doing at the VFL level at the, um, at the AFL level. So I think you've got to have a really clear goal in mind when you put players into the VFL, what you want them to get out of it. And then they come in, they need to come in and play that role in the seniors. Yeah, I think that's a great summary, mate. I think we desperately need further investment and development of our VFL program. We, we need to strengthen that up. We need to make it a place that, um, uh, you know, like D'Ambrosio, um, went to Richmond. We we need, we want young guys to aspire to come, and you know they they missed out on the draft. Come to Essendon to to give themselves a chance to to get drafted. Uh, and we also need to get some some maturity through there to help protect these young guys and and make sure that that they've got some experience around them around them. Um, but I think the and I think we saw a little bit of a glimpse of what that that does on the weekend, didn't we? I mean, I know Coburg haven't been going well either. They've only won the one game for the year. Um, but Stewart was the, you know, the best defender on the ground. I think he took 15 or 16 marks. Um, so, you know, he comes back in and is able to really hold a position down there. We had Francis playing forward to, to give us some experience there. And Cutler, I think, was, had the most disposals on the ground playing through the midfield. So we had, you know, experience in the three lines on the ground. And, and and ended up getting a close win. Um, so, yeah, I, I think at the moment our young players aren't getting the development that we would like them to have playing in a VFL program that that doesn't have the resource or the the, the capabilities in it to, to really help create the best environment. Um, and obviously injuries 
to our senior players hurt that as well because you know when you've got a deep injury list it means that um that you don't have you know enough guys running around in your twos and you're relying on top-ups the flip side to that though is that it is creating opportunities for guys to to play and you know injuries that is um it's creating opportunities for more guys to get a crack at senior footy that probably um that probably wouldn't have otherwise and we spoke a few weeks ago about what the the benefit of the 1997 season for those that can remember back then long back that long ago um and obviously 1997 was a little bit different 96 we we made a prelim um and then went into a mini rebuild and we had so we had guys in injured in 97 like we did like we have this year so long heard Buick in particular barely played in 1997 the one difference we did have then compared to now is that we also had O'Donnell, Fletcher, Mercedes, et cetera, still playing, and they had plenty of experience. But what did happen in 97 was that we got 22 games into Scott Lucas, who was only in his second season. Wellman had only played about 30 games prior to, to 97 and played all 22 that year. Lloyd came into that year having played 16 games and played all 22. Carousella debuted, played 17 games. Blumfield was in his second year, played 15 Moorcroft was in his second year and played 11. And then, you know, three years later, they were obviously all premiership players. So, you know, whilst it's a bit ugly at the moment on the field and things aren't going our way, we are getting a lot of games into into youngsters. And, um, yeah, and I think that the games that we're exposing these young guys to now is, is going to be better for us in the long run. So the quicker the blokes like Martin and Perkins and, and whatnot get to 50 games... The, the better we're going to be. So, yeah, I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. I'm going to move on to our, our final question. We've got one we're actually going to hold over to till next week. Plugger, your your question about the list. We think that's a good good way to start next week's episode. Uh, but we will finish with Silvertop Hurley's question about the best midfield mix and balance for the second half of the season. And the thing that, thing that I think needs to happen at every centre bounce for the rest of the year is it's one of Langford, Perkins or Stringer is at that second bounce. So one of the things I did this week was I, I went and did a deep dive into Perkins center bounce attendances. It really stood out how much more he, he attended than he had in the, in previous weeks. He, he was the most attended player for Essendon at the center bounces. So I really wanted to get an idea of, of what he'd done and, and, and why he was, why he was kept being put back in there. What really stood out to me, he didn't have a huge impact on, on the clearances directly. He only had one himself. Well, the thing that really stood out to me in the first half was how little his opponent influenced that centre bounce. And he was really good at, at just providing enough of a block that the player couldn't inter- couldn't interrupt uh, one of our clearances or wasn't in a position to, to take part in, in Port's clearance. There's probably one moment where he lets uh, Drew get off and Drew should have been the option. The Ruckman gets the ball from the contest and Drew really should have been the option there. And so he'd let him, he let him go there. The Ruckman didn't go to Drew, uh, but that was out of, you know, 12, 12 contests in the first half. That was, that was the one time that he, he let, he let his player go. And I think that was a sign of just, you know, that, that slightly bigger body uh, being really influential. And the other thing that I, I noticed was that he actually started to become the target in the second half. He was, he was the one they were going for in the second half and and he he was able to get a, a step on, his opponent and, and really be dangerous in that second half. So one of those three at each centre bounce is really important. I think just for that larger body and that point of difference, as opposed to just going with Merritt Shield and uh, Merritt Shield and Parish as, as the three. 
Yeah, I, I'd actually just reduce that to two, mate, to be honest with you. I think um, I think Langford can be more dangerous outside of the, the centre clearance than inside. I think he's a little bit less agile than, than the other two and probably not as quite as clean below his knees, which I think you really need to be at the centre bounce. I think his size... Uh, is really useful around stoppages as the sort of the second layer at the contest. But I, I'd leave him out and, and leave him on a wing or half forward where I think he plays his best footy. Um, but, yeah, I, I was really encouraged by what I saw of, of Archie Perkins in the centre bounce. He's, he's been in once or twice in previous games and, um, and won the odd clearance. But to see him go in 16 times and, and really, you know, show – show his physical attributes uh, was, yeah, really positive to say. I wonder whether there might be some benefit long-term. It's probably not going to help us as much in 2022, but do we just look at leaving Stringer almost permanent forward, only goes in when Perkins is resting on the bench um, and using Perkins more in the midfield might help speed up his development. Uh, but I agree, yeah, we, we should definitely have one of those two in at all times. The one that I'm interested to see how it unfolds is is Hobbs and then Snelling when Snelling comes back in the side. Uh, and and you can add Caldwell into that mix as well because Hobbs and Caldwell have been playing half forward with um, with runs through the middle. Yeah, Caldwell's been sort of in at 10 or so centre bounces most weeks. Hobbs, not too many, but he's been playing that high half forward, extra midfielder role that Snelling was playing last year. So... Uh, this isn't a direct answer to the question, more just a curiosity and, and one that we'll have to watch to see how that that unfolds. Because I, I kind of wonder whether you can play all three. Uh, I'm not sure that you can. It might make us a bit unbalanced because Snelling's not really a midfielder. He's he's very good tackler and harasser, but he's not really a goal kicker either. Um, so, yeah, we'll, it'll be interesting to see how that, that one plays out, mate. Absolutely. So... We're gonna we're gonna start to wrap it up, but looking forward, you know what are, what are the things that we can, you know the season the finals are gone, you know realistically when we're not going to be featuring in, in September this year. What's left to be gained out of the season? What are the things that you're looking to uh, to get out of the rest of the year? Yeah, I, we touched on one already. So midfield minutes for Perkins and and Hobbs and also Caldwell building up his midfield engine, having come back from injury. In previous years, so I think that's that's a big one there. Uh, another eleven games to improve this defensive, you know, high f- press that we're trying to to implement and get that better. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's a, a great opportunity to keep developing that. The Wright and Jones combination, uh, obviously, Hooker last year took the key forward or the the number one defender a lot of the time. So, you know, this is now Peter Wright and, and Harry Jones forward line. So. Hopefully Jones can stay on the park and we get to see them working together. Uh, and then I think it's a, an opportunity to see Zach Merritt used in some different ways and, and a little bit more outside the contest so we can really benefit from his foot skills. So whether that's on a wing, a little bit half back, a little bit half forward and and, and a little bit midfield as well. But uh, I think the, the more we can get him outside the contest, I think we become a better side. So, yeah, they're the bits for me, mate. What about you? Look, as as I said before, the only the only sort of way is up here. I think you know, just just getting that experience and seeing them start to work together. Hopefully, they get some moments where you know they can see what they're what they're trying to do is paying off. And I think you know, 
just a, even if it's in a couple of games here and there, that can be enough to sustain a playing group, you know, going into next year with some confidence. So hopefully they, they get, you know, two or three, two or three games or, or two or three, you know, periods in games where it really works well. And it, it really highlights, you know, that what they're trying to achieve is something valuable. So hopefully that's, that's what they get out of it there. But we'll move on to our, our final thought and our final thoughts about, you know, projecting ahead. Uh, how many, how many wins do you think Essendon finishes this year with? What's your what's your pick if you had to put a number on it? Yeah, the the next one's the most important one, isn't it? We want to beat the old enemy, so um, I'd almost almost be tempted to go as far as saying if we only win one more and it's that one, I'd be happy. But that's probably not quite true. I think we could we should be aiming to to win half our games should be the objective, knowing that we're playing. Uh, we still have to play West Coast and uh, and North Melbourne, obviously. So you should expect they would be two wins. And then if we can find two to th- two to three wins elsewhere, maybe get a scalp that helps give us some confidence and we finish the year on seven wins. I think uh, having found a number of players this year, yeah, um, you know, I think that will allow us to hit 2023 with some enthusiasm. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to say, I'll, I'll probably say six. I think, you know, those, those two North and West Coasts, you know, you, you should be expecting to win given how they're performing this year. And then, yeah, hopefully a couple of scalps, as you said, you know, if it's if it ends up being Carlton and, and hopefully Richmond in the last game, I wouldn't mind seeing us beat Richmond for, for once. If I could have that as a, a result, I'd, I'd end the year quite happy there. But yeah, I think, you know, half, half, half the games remaining is a, is a reasonable goal, I think, from there. And it would give some momentum going into next season. But that'll wrap us up tonight. Thanks for listening, particularly if you listen to the, us live, do this live and then listen to the re-recording, you know, gluttons for punishment, I guess. But uh, thanks for jumping on and re-recording this with me, Jono. Um, I, know you, I know you gave up a, a really exciting <laughs> night to do, an exciting night to do this. Uh, but yeah, yeah. No, not much else going on in, in ISO, mate. But yeah, thank you for, uh, for your patience and, and sorting us out here. Uh, I guess, just quickly, mate, for those that are maybe listening on the podcast feeds that um, aren't following us on Twitter, if they do want to get involved, you can uh, hit follow me at Jonathan J. Walsh on Twitter, uh, which is so Jonathan's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. Um, and, yeah, it, send me a message or, or uh, drop into my DMs if you've got questions you'd like us to cover. Uh, Humi, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, mine's at Kiptastic One. That's K Y P T A S T I C One. Don't ask about the name. It's a very, <laughs> it's a long story. Um, but yeah, I, or, or I, they can, or they can email mate as well on on the start at gmail.com. We're a, a really professional outfit now with our own email address. So, so yeah, if you do want to get involved and ask some questions, um, yeah, we're we're really enjoying the the audience um, getting involved and and being part of this. So, drop us a line. Absolutely, go Dons. Cheers, mate. Bye.